As if the McCrispy couldn't get any better, bacon and ranch just entered the chat. The Bacon Ranch McCrispy, available at participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ba da ba ba ba. and welcome into this edition of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. On this edition of the show, we recap the Miami game. We talk about what Sam Howell's potential flip to Carolina could mean if it was to happen. We debate a little bit about which of the five quarterbacks that I posted on my Twitter feed earlier this week is the best. And we preview the upcoming game against Virginia Tech. Now, let's jump in to the recap of the Miami game and hear some of the remarks from Zach Hubbard on what he saw on the field last Thursday night. The quarterbacks did not play well. We can get that out of the way right now. But also, we look at the defense they were playing. They were playing a... a top 15, top 20 defense, an elite defense full of blue chip recruits and a defense that, as we stated in the preview to Miami, was first in the nation in third down defense and stays that way. Now, you look at turnovers, a lot of these turnovers were unforced errors. A lot of the uh, picks, at least two of the three picks that um, Chancellorette threw were largely unforced. Uh, There was, you know, some pressure, but there were... uh, clear chances where he could have thrown it away or taken the sack and he just made bad decisions. And that's similar to what we saw last year from Chad Surratt is that there were instances where he would be pressured. He would try to force the issue and it would lead to bad turnovers. And Miami had probably the best, uh, probably took advantage of that the best as compared to any game we've seen Chad Surratt play in. Maybe uh, Virginia Tech last year would be on that same level, but Miami used their defensive momentum to get points uh, against North Carolina. But I think that people focus a little too much on the interceptions and don't also focus on the fumbles that we had. We had three fumbles, I believe, all of which uh, were attributed to Nathan Elliott, that one pretty bad strip sack, and then I think uh, one or two others uh, – at least one was a, a botched handoff on a read option play, and I don't remember the third. I think it was similar to that, but it was a botched handoff or something like that. But each quarterback had three turnovers in this game, and you just can't win games that way. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the defense of Miami, you got to give them credit. Like you said, they did a fantastic job. Came in leading the nation in tackles for loss and added 14 more to that. So, yeah, I mean, they, uh, they lived in the backfield, and – that, that was one of the issues, I think, for most of the evening. I think at this point, though, the, the the frustration for fans lies with the fact that they're just not using that running game as much as they should. With the passing game struggling, with the, um, I, I mean, even with some of the read option handoffs, uh, you know, r- really not going the way they're hoping. I, I think at this point, you've got to kind of, look at that run game and, and just say, look, we, we've we got to run the football no matter what. I mean, even if we're trailing in games by uh, 17 or 21, at this point, the passing game is not going to get you back into it. We've seen that multiple times throughout this season, and it showed again against Miami. Um, I think the, 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 the thing that a lot of people are going to look back on, like you said, in this, on the stat sheet, it's going to show 
the interceptions for Surratt, and, and that's an issue in itself. He threw 10 pa passes on that Thursday night, and it ended up uh, three of them were intercepted. So clearly there's a bit of an issue there. I thought he showed us something running the football, um, which is good, but at the same time, you can't have a guy out there, a quarterback, that cannot throw the ball more than five to ten yards downfield without being intercepted. That's not a game plan for success. I didn't think Nathan Elliott was all that great either, but at the same time, I, I think, you know, he's he's in a little more of a rhythm right now. I think it's going to take time for Surratt to get back into that in-game rhythm that he was at last year. And even last year, you know, I didn't think he was really all that great in certain moments. I think he panics a lot under pressure. I think that showed again in the game against Miami. And, you know, the only thing that I think we can kind of take away from this is that, you know, all these people that were saying, oh, when Chasarak comes back, he is automatically going to make this offense so much better. That's not true. And, at the moment, I think right now we're kind of stuck in no man's land at the quarterback position. I don't feel like Nathan Elliott is the long-term solution, but I don't feel like Chad Surratt is either. And, I mean, if if you look at it from a national perspective, I think everybody is pretty much saying that, that this team has no quarterback and we are that, – that's what's holding us back. Um, I'm not quite with some of the fans that are saying if we had a quarterback, we would be undefeated. I'm not going to go that far, but I think that for sh we, we would have hung around in the game against Miami, which I thought we were capable of. I don't think that Miami team is as good as their preseason ranking said, and I think that showed in the game against Florida State this past Saturday. And, I, I, I mean, now you're, you're kind of in no man's land here. You're 1-3. You really don't have any sort of solution that you can go to because last year – I feel like, you know, you had Brandon Harris struggling, you had Chas Surratt struggling, but you hadn't used Nathan Elliott yet, so you thought there was something there. At this point, it pretty much seems like they're not going to go to Cade Fortin unless something severe happens. So it seems like we're kind of stuck in no man's land with these quarterbacks and that these are the two guys we're rolling with. One of them is going to have to emerge going forward. So, um, you know, when you look, uh, here's another thing that I heard a lot of people saying, and I, I want your uh, take on this. What did you think of the defensive performance? Because overall, I didn't think it was that bad either. There are a lot of people saying that they thought um, it was a pretty good defensive performance. So what did you see? Well, I think that it was hard to take a lot away from this defensive performance because the defense really didn't play all that much. The Miami offense, due to their defense doing so well, only had to have 46 snaps of, of offense in the entire game. And in those 46 snaps, they still got a fair amount of you know good offense. They got 334 yards of total offense for about 77 yards of play. They only threw 12 passes uh, in the whole game. Um and they mainly ran the ball, uh, ran 34 times for 229 yards at about 6.7 yards per carry. So in terms of pass defense, I think we did fairly well. We got that first interception, which was nice. Um, mm -hmm. Got two turnovers on the night, which was nice. Uh, and would have been even better in any other game. But I, there were issues that I saw. There were certainly missed assignments and missed tackles that um, – Sort of long, I believe it was uh, run by DJ Dallas. I think it was a counter 
uh, could have been a tackle for loss. Um, but the linebacker was just in the wrong position and wasn't able to have the speed to correct it. Uh, and the Miami running back got a big play out of it. So I, I think there were still issues. Obviously, there's still going to be issues that need to be worked out. I mean, this was the team's, what, fourth game. That's not really a huge sample size. And really, you see your team get better as weeks go on and on. But I don't think that we can say that this UNC defense is going to carry the team quite like we thought it would. We knew that they were going to have to lean on their defense early. That's been true so far. But outside of the Cal game, the defense really has not done a lot to keep Carolina in these games. They've been good enough. They've shown improvement from uh, the past years, but it's not enough to the point where you can trust your defense to hold opponent offenses to minimal amount of points and just hope that your your own offense figures it out in time to win. It's going to take some aggression from this offense to keep Carolina in games down the stretch. The concerning thing for me is exactly what you just said, and that's that there continues to be missed assignments for these linebackers and for these secondary members when they come down into the box to try to help and run defense. And, you know, I get that that's going to happen sometimes in games, but it seems to happen so frequently with this defense. And that's not all on John Papuchas because that was a thing before he got there. But I just don't understand how they haven't been able to iron this out. Now, for this squad, I don't. I, I still think that it's like you said. Right now, we don't know a whole lot about this team, I think, as we sit here because we've played four games, but we're already six weeks into the season. And, I mean, because we, we've had two bye weeks already. So... Um, yeah, I, I think that overall, you know, I was talking about this with a guy, um, today on Facebook when, uh, he was reading my article about flipping Sam Howell and how the quarterback position at this moment, I think is the most important. And we'll get into that when we talk about Howell coming up here. But, um, you know, I, I said to him, you know, the talent is there. It's really not a talent problem. It's more of a developmental problem. And I just, I don't get what they're doing wrong. Um, it, it seems like guys just don't know where to be at times on the field. And, I mean, you mentioned it. They only ran 46 plays. 34 of them were runs. But they had 229 yards rushing on just 34 rush attempts. That's 6.7 yards per carry. That is that is not good. That cannot happen if you're going to win games. So, um, I mean, you know, there's, I don't think this unit is terrible. I, I really don't. I, I don't think this is even the worst unit that Larry Fedora has had in Chapel Hill. I think that might've been either last year's unit or possibly even 2015's unit. But, you know, I, I, I just, it's just so, uh, something that I think at this point, a lot of Tar Heel fans have to be sitting back and saying, what is the solution? How do we find a solution here? Because, you know, they've been saying, oh, we need do a, a new defensive coordinator. Well, we thought we needed a new defensive coordinator when Gene Chizik left town. We brought in John Papuchis, and it hasn't really been much different. So I don't know where the change has to be made, but hopefully somewhere along the way they can find some traction there. But overall, 
you know, it, you, you mentioned the first interception, the ability to turn the ball over twice. I mean, it's starting to come to this defense a little bit here that they're able to maybe force a few turnovers, which is a step in the right direction after the last couple of years where we just haven't been able to create turnovers. But, um, you know, when I look at it, I think the secondary is still one of the bright spots, especially the young guys in the secondary, like Trey Morrison, who I think is playing outstanding. I think Bryson Richardson has looked very good to this point. Miles Wolfolk um, has looked fantastic filling in for Miles Dorn. And that's the other thing about this team. We are still without Aaron Crawford, without Miles Dorn, without a 100% Michael Carter. So there are still injuries that this team is working to get back from that, you know, potentially could help this defense going forward um, and, and could potentially maybe put this team in some competitive games going down the stretch because the schedule, it, it, it still looks pretty difficult. I know, you know, Syracuse losing definitely helps the squad, but I still think right now it's a very difficult schedule going forward. So, um, yeah, I mean, any other uh, any other real points on the Miami game? I feel like there's not much that we can really take out of that game because of just how many turnovers there were. I think that kind of hurt um, both, so both sides of the ball equally. I, I don't think we can really take much away from it. Well, there's just one more thing that I wanted to say. And mm -hmm. I feel like it's been every week that we've said that each game is sort of a crossroads game for this team and for Larry Fedora and his staff. Um, and I think that every game is important, specifically this year, uh, with the landscape of the Carolina football program as we've, as we've seen this. But mm -hmm. just uh, to put sort of a bow on this game, this was one of the worst Carolina games I think I've ever watched in my years watching. Uh, it was certainly not a bright spot for this team and for this unit. Hopefully they can get better. Hopefully this was a, a teaching opportunity, but uh, it's clear that things have to be better, that things have to improve, and that there have to be major changes made really across the board uh, to this team, not necessarily uh, calling for anyone's job or anything like that. That's not really the topic that I wanted to discuss today, but right. for this team and this year, there has to be changes made in how you do things. Uh, and I, this coming Saturday, I think we'll hopefully see some of those changes after Carolina got an extended break with uh, coming off the short week and then having a bye week this past weekend. Yeah, they've got to reestablish some belief in this squad. Um, I saw the tweet from Tar Heel Illustrated heading into the fourth quarter. Uh, there were four guys on the entire team that held up uh, their, their fours for the fourth quarter. Um, which is a tradition that every team does, um, but especially at Carolina, we've seen it. And for only four players to be holding their hands up in a game where, yeah, you were down 23, but you were driving, and if you score there and, I, I mean, at least, and, and make the extra point, which you would assume, you know, with how good Freeman Jones has been this year, you would only be down 16, which is only a two-possession game. That's how you've got to look at it, especially if you're a player on the field. And for only four guys to be holding their hands up, it is concerning for sure. And it's starting to show that the belief is maybe fraying a little bit. I'm going to be interested to see how they do recover from that um, for this game against Virginia Tech. But as you mentioned, we'll talk a little bit about that coming up. So from there, we'll turn and talk a little bit about the storyline during this bye week. And I think it was the one that um, I think has people 
a little bit excited, and maybe rightfully so, um, because Sam Howell, the 2019 pro-style quarterback from right down the road from my house here in Indian Trail, um, he is, uh, or he was, of course, at uh, Carolina on back on September 22nd um, for the Pittsburgh game, and at the time, I think we all kind of, you know, saw him there and said, okay, well, you know, he's he's there. Um, he said he told uh, Inside Carolina, I believe, or maybe it was one of the other ones, but he told one of the recruiting um, groups that he was simply there to uh, take in the game and kind of walk 2021 five-star wide receiver Gavin Blackwell through what was his first unofficial visit, basically. Um, you know, do I a hundred percent believe that? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say yes. Um, I mean, he's, he, of course, if he's there, he's going to be looking around. He's going to be, you know, talking to the coaches. So I don't know if I 100% believe that statement, but I believe he was probably there to enjoy the game with a guy that is, he is friends with. And that is a big time recruit as well. Um, but you know, then we see Larry fly in this Friday. He goes in by helicopter here to, uh, Charlotte Catholic right here in Charlotte to see how he'll play against one of the more justifiable teams in the area. Charlotte Catholic is just about as good as they come in the Charlotte area. So, um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's a bold move by Fedora. I think at this point he kind of realizes what everybody's been saying. He is on relatively thin ice here and he needs to do something drastic. This might be the thing that he needs to do drastic. Um, and, and I think right now that's kind of what he's thinking is we've got to go all in for this guy. Um, now, let me give you a little bit of background really quickly before we go and start breaking this down a little bit on Howell. Uh, he, he started as a freshman here uh, in high school when uh, he took over for an injured quarterback at Sun Valley. And really from that point on, he just rolled. I mean, he threw 15 interceptions as a freshman, but, you know, that that's kind of expected. He still threw for over 3,500 yards as a freshman, which is unbelievably impressive in high school football, and especially considering he only played in 12 games that year because they were beat in the first round of the playoffs. But uh, since then, he's really only grown as a player. Last year, threw for over 3,000 yards. Once again, ran for over 1,500 yards as well, and this kid is all over the state record books when it comes to uh, North Carolina history. He is uh, second in total um, total offense. He is, uh, and he's third in passing yardage, passing touchdowns, and total touchdowns. So this kid is the real deal. Now, you might say, well, Chad Surratt is up there in a lot of those categories as well. Chad Surratt doesn't play in the same league that Sam Howell played in. Uh, Chad Surratt played in the 2A league and he played up in Lincoln County, which honestly, if we're looking at it, really wasn't all that tough. There were really one or two good teams up in that area. So until you got pretty much to the state semifinals or state finals, you really didn't face a great opponent. Sam Howell plays in 3A where you've got teams like Charlotte Catholic, like Weddington, like Marvin Ridge, who produce um, some some NFL prospects just or or some uh, excuse me Power Five prospects just about every year. Um, there are guys that have gone from those schools as well to the NFL. So 
Uh, you know, it, it is a little bit different for him, I think. Uh, I think also when you look at him, he was an Elite 11 quarterback. So you can tell that there's a little more talent there. And from what you guys have probably heard over the years from me or read over the years from me, this guy reminds me a lot of Mitch Trubisky. He's got a big arm. Um, he takes care of the football very well, though. He doesn't try to force passes, especially um, in in some of these situations, uh, especially in late game situations. You know, I've seen some of these situations where his team was trailing and he could have just started taking risks that weren't needed. This kid's very smart with the football. He's got that running ability that. I think would be better than anybody that we currently have on the roster at Carolina, maybe outside of Jace Reuter. But I think when you look at Jace Reuter, he's not as polished of a passer. I think Howell can be both. Um, and I really just, just his overall size, the kid's six two, but he is built like a freight train. So if he needs to, he can run over people. He also hurdled a defender earlier this year in a game against Olympic high school. If you guys haven't seen that, go back and watch it. But this kid, is tearing it up, and I think if they can land him, it could be a game changer. So I know you probably saw a little bit of this, Zach. Um, when you look at it, do you think this is maybe a last-ditch effort by Larry Fedora to say, look, even if the results aren't there on the field, if I can bring this guy in, maybe I keep my job. Is that is that maybe the line he's taken here? I think that's certainly part of it, and it's really just an effort to try – to salvage the season, A, just in terms of recruiting, UNC does not have a quarterback. So if you basically swung and missed on every target that you've had so far, you're going to try to circle back and, you know, talk to this guy that was at the top of your board to begin with, and that's Sam Howell. I mean, Sam Howell, as listed by uh, 24-7 Sports, is the fourth best quarterback in the nation. This is a top 100 player. This is an elite guy, uh, like you said, in the Elite eleven as its name. So this is this was Larry Fedora's top uh, QB target in this track or in this uh, class rather. And I think it's probably his, one of his biggest, if not his biggest recruit, just based on how much uh, UNC's team under Larry Fedora runs through the quarterback position. Mm -hmm. As the quarterback on this team goes, so goes the team. Um, now in terms of is he looking around? I certainly think he's looking around as he did before he committed, but I'm not sure that I'm ready to say that there is going to be a decommitment. I know that Florida State feels pretty good about this commitment. He told them before he came on his visit, he has reaffirmed publicly that he's committed to Florida State. Um, of course, we've seen the rumors about possibly flipping to um, UNC or to Duke. We've even seen, but I'm, I'm just not ready to put a lot of stock in these offers. A lot of these come off the fact that, you know, Florida State is struggling so far this season and is having difficulty um, winning games. But I think you could say the same for UNC and for Duke so far. Uh, and another thing that people like to point out as, you know, a pro-UNC selling point on Sam Howell is that the offense that he runs at his high school is basically the same offense run by Larry Fedora's staff at UNC. But you go down and look at Florida State and the sort of Gulf Coast offense that Willie Taggart and his staff run, and it's fairly similar to the offense you see up here at UNC. So I'm hard-pressed to say that there are a lot of things that are clear advantages for the in-state teams. For Sam Howell, I think that Florida State is promising him early playing time, I feel like 
if I was Sam Howell, uh, in his mindset, he probably sees himself as the next quarterback within this system. He's probably the most uh, sort of true dual threat that they would have if they keep DeAndre Francois and uh, James Blackman um, that are holdovers from the um, Jimbo Fisher era. So I, I'm hard-pressed to see him flip, but I did certainly think it was interesting that he was there looking around. Yeah, I, I think you're smart to have that opinion. And, you know, I've, I've been around Howell since his freshman year, um, similar to Carolina. And that's the thing where I think, you know, a lot of people got to understand, look, I, they, the Tar Heels are not going to go away that easily, and they shouldn't because they've been around him since his freshman year. So in order, you know, you put all that time into a guy, of course you're going to try to keep, you know, y- your name on his mind and – keep visiting him and saying, okay, look, are you 100% sure? I'm not sure that Howell is 100% sure, but I, I, you're, you're, I think you're right. Knowing him a little bit, I think he's still very solidly committed there. Um, the key is Walt Bell, the offensive coordinator for the Seminoles. And Walt Bell was the guy that gave him his first offer in Maryland. So he has a longstanding relationship with him. Um, so, you know, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to really convince him to kind of cut that tie. Um, the only thing that he may have going for him in that respect is if he does cut that tie, uh, Walt Bell would understand because Walt Bell was part of Larry Fedora's staff when Fedora first came to Chapel Hill. So Fedora does have a connection with Walt Bell as well. It's just two guys that are close uh, counterparts that are battling it out for a guy. But um, you know, when, when it comes to the playing time situation, I, I think that's an interesting perspective. I know that Florida State says that they will give him a lot of playing time, and maybe that is true, but I feel like you're still going to have Francois there. Uh, you're still going to have James Blackman as well, and I feel like, you know, you got Francois, who I think hasn't played great, but hasn't played terrible, and with James Blackman, he has a lot of experience. This was a guy that a lot of people thought should have started this year. So, I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, you know, maybe they give him the nod, but I still think that that seniority, they might end up still going with that. So, he might not start right away. Whereas at Carolina, I think if he comes to Carolina, they almost have no choice but to start him because he will be the most talented guy out there. Um, I, I, I'm, I mean, I'm telling you, there's so many things that remind me about of Mitch Trubisky about him, and that was how we kind of all felt with Mitch Trubisky. Now, he was, of course, redshirted, but um, at the time, you did have Bren Renner and Marquise Williams still on campus. Right now, there's no way that we're comparing Nathan Elliott and Chaz Surratt to those guys. So, um, you know, I, I think he could come in and have an immediate impact for sure. I think the selling point for Larry there would be, look, Florida State tells you that they might be able to play you your true freshman year. If you come to Carolina, you're the starter the minute you step on campus, pretty much. Um, I don't know if Larry would tell him that. Maybe he will as a recruiting pitch. And then we all know Larry, he likes to, you know, say, oh, we got a quarterback battle going on. All five guys will battle it out. Um, if he comes to campus, I think he should be the guy. But um, – I, I, I do think it is one of those moves by Fedora where he realizes that if you land the top in-state prospect, 
there's it's it's going to be hard to say okay you've landed the top in-state prospect now we got to let you go as a coach but that's the thing that i think might be hurting the potential of the flip from howell is right now if you're larry fedora you're trying to convince a player to flip his commitment and commit to a school where there is where pretty much the mindset right now of many people around the program and even outside of the program is that he is pretty much out the door just waiting till the end of the season that that's pretty much it like he is already gone they're just holding on until the season's over um and in order to sell that if you're Larry Fedora yeah I mean it's gotta it's gonna take a lot um Florida State is not the greatest situation right now but I would be willing to bet that they will not fire Willie Taggart at the end of the season um, they've, they've, they've won, what are they now? Three and three on the season. I believe they've won three games. I think for, a, for a first year coach, they probably reached that point where you, you wouldn't fire them. It, I, I mean, I was thinking probably around one and 11 would be where they would need to be at to fire him. So it, it's going to be a hard sell for Larry Fedora. I hope he can do it. I would love to have Sam Howell in Chapel Hill. As you guys know, um, I, I am, that, that's, that's been one of my guys for a while in this 2019 class, but at the moment, I think it's, we need to temper the expectations, but I was talking about this with one of the guys on Facebook and, you know, he, we, we were going back and forth and he thinks, you know, there are some issues on the defensive side of the football, which I believe is true, but I think it's more of a developmental issue. This is my question to you. Is the quarterback position, in your mind, the biggest need for this 2019 class? I would not say that this is the biggest need for the 2019 class. The biggest need, just in terms of numbers going into this recruiting class, was defensive line. So far, Carolina has not been successful there. And the reason that defensive line is so important is because UNC is losing a lot of defensive linemen uh, coming up um, after this season. They're going to be losing... Um, Malik Carney, redshirt senior, Jeremiah Clark, redshirt senior, Tyler Powell, redshirt senior, Jalen Dalton, redshirt senior. That's four right there that are almost that are guaranteed to leave. And if Aaron Crawford comes back, you know, has a good season, he was a guy that preseason was getting some draft buzz. Now that he's missed, you know, about half the season, I don't know if he'll be able to recover enough time to really put on a lot of draft film, but that's four defensive linemen that Carolina is losing as mm-hmm. is. Um, we haven't seen uh, freshman defensive tackle Grant Lawless enroll yet, so not really sure what's going on with him. So worst case scenario, uh, UNC would go into 2019 with really four defensive tackles, really only in the two deep, and they need at least six um, so there are going to have to be things that go their way, not only in the offseason, uh, in roster changes, but also in recruiting to get some of these defensive linemen in here to build that depth back up. I feel like that that's a position that UNC always wants to have a fair amount of, of depth at, and they're going to be losing quite a few players this coming offseason. Yeah, the defensive line, I think, definitely has to be a concern, especially on the interior, like you said. I think they have some options with guys like Nolan DeFranco, who they moved to defensive tackle during the offseason, then moved back to defensive end. 
um, for the regular season. We haven't really seen Nolan out there, but um, there are some options. But you can you are right about that that there is some urgency there because you can see it. There have been two guys in the last week that have been offered that are JUCO prospects at the defensive end position. So you can tell that there are some concerns about the numbers that they're going to have down there on the defensive line. Um, but, you know, overall, I think they might be able to get that set away. I think that, you know, just by looking at some of the guys that they are targeting in the uh, 2019 class, I still think there's a decent amount of prospects that you can possibly land. One of the guys that I think has to be encouraging, it has to be encouraging that he's coming to campus uh, for this weekend's game is Ben Smiley, who's coming down from um, from Chesapeake, Virginia, to actually watch this game. He'll be there as part of the UNC group of prospects against Virginia Tech. So that's kind of interesting. He was a guy that was kind of, I, I guess we were on the outside looking in for him. He had set a top seven at one time, but then deleted the tweet. Um, then he had like a silent commitment to um, to Virginia. He was a very, very confusing prospect. And now, um, I, I don't think anybody really knows exactly where his recruitment is at the moment. Um, but I think, you know, him coming on campus, that's, that's going to be an encouraging sign. So, you know, I think there is, there, there are some guys down there. They're offering some new prospects at that position. It seems like, um, as well. So I think that's a need, but I still think that the quarterback is, is the biggest need. And I'm going to tell you why, because I feel like the quarterback, if you have a quarterback, it can mask so many issues that you have with your team. You know, you look at the issues that we had where when Marquise was there and when Mitch Trubisky were under, you know, when, when those guys were back there taking snaps, there were issues on the defensive side of the football. There were issues on the offensive line. They were able to mask those issues with how successful they were offensively. And really, you've seen it over the last two years without a quarterback there in position that can really take over a game. They, they've really struggled, and right, right now, I just get the feeling that, you know, quarterback is the biggest need because it's the most important position in the sport of football. We've seen that kind of evolve over the years. It used to be, if you had a great running back, you could that, that, that was how you won. You could manage without a great quarterback. In today's realm of football, whether it's high school, whether it's college football, or whether it's the NFL. If you've got a quarterback, you've got a chance. That's pretty much what the mindset is. So, you know, I think finding that quarterback is a, is a key here. And the other reason why is this they, they cannot go two out of three years without landing a quarterback. Now, they landed two quarterbacks last year, but you've got to think, that's still, that that's four guys that are there, but... When Nathan Elliott leaves after next season, that would mean that you only have you have the uh, senior in Chaz Surratt. Then you would have the two um, the two juniors then in Cade Fortin and uh, Jace Ruder. And then, or, well, it depends on if they redshirt, which they most likely will. I forgot about that. So yeah, potentially sophomores. And then you would 
have a, a gap back to what would be a true freshman at the time because we're not even going to have a walk-on quarterback. Our walk-on quarterback would be Jack Davidson, but Jack Davidson, I, I think is he's a little bit different than than Manny Miles even. I, I don't feel like Jack Davidson's that guy that would be any sort of competition at quarterback. So, you know, I, I think it's they, – they've got to do something. And right now, uh, I mean, you, you talked about it a little bit. Every quarterback that they have offered so far in this 2019 class at this moment is committed. So they've got to do something. They can't just sit here and pray, I think, for a flip. Maybe – I mean, of course you're going to pursue Howell. You're going to pursue anybody else that – could potentially be showing signs that they might flip, which at the moment it doesn't seem like anybody else is really hinting at that at all. Um, but I, I think you've also got to get some offers on the table to some of these other guys around the area. I know Casey Kelly, um, who plays at Mallard Creek High School here in Charlotte, the brother of uh, former Ole Miss quarterback and current Denver Broncos quarterback Chad Kelly. He plays here. I saw him earlier this year. You know, he's a guy that could warrant, um, you know, a scholarship offer and, and I think could come in and really develop um, depending on who the uh, who the head coach is. And, you know, there's some other guys in the area. But for me, you've got to get some of these other offers on the table and you've got to find a quarterback in this 2019 class. So we've been talking about the quarterbacks. And earlier this week, um, last Friday, was Marquise Williams' birthday. Happy birthday to Marquise Williams, uh, who was one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time at Carolina. I said um, he is the greatest quarterback of all time at North Carolina. And that sparked a little bit of a debate between me and, of course, Josh Marlowe, who you guys all know, my best friend. Um, and, you know, we, we were just having a, a, a good conversation about – um, you know, Keese about TJ Yates, who is the guy that he would go with, um, about uh, Bryn Renner, Mar uh, Mitch Trubisky, and um, Darian Durant. And so I had a bit of a question uh, that I'm going to bring up to Zach here, and I'm going to let him rank it, and then we'll break it down just a little bit. When you look at these five quarterbacks, uh, how would you rank them? Uh, at the from you know with, with everything combined overall quarterback talent um, combined with their statistics and time on campus how would you rank those five guys well I think that most of this debate comes down to the system that each quarterback was under that's certainly a big part of it as you look for mm -hmm. more of a profile pro style system with guys like Gary Durant uh, TJ Yates and Bryn Renner and then moving towards that sort of uh more open spread style with Marquise Williams and uh, Mitch Trubisky. Uh, in terms of who is the best among this list, I would probably put, um, I think I would put Marquise at that number one spot as you did simply because of his ability to win when it mattered. I, I think that, you know, he's certainly not a guy that played perfectly uh, or even had, had the best statistics, but he had comparable enough statistics, and he knew how to win when, you know, the chips were on the table and you needed that extra play, you needed that, that extra yard. And he put guys and he put the team as a whole in positions to win consistently, especially in that 2015 season. So I'll put him in my number one spot. In my number two spot, uh, I'll put Mitch Trubisky. You know, he has the single-season record for passing yards, single-season for touchdowns basically has almost any uh, 
single season record that you can have for a quarterback at UNC. And while he was he wasn't perfect, and I, I think that there were certainly times that he struggled. That you look at this offense and you look at how he moved the ball and the way that he uh, kept clean and you know was efficient with the football. I would put him at number two. Sort of uh, in my three or four spot to move on, I would have TJ Yates and Brenner, Bryn Renner kind of indistinguishable. Um, probably Bryn Renner at three and TJ Yates at, at four. Um, Bryn Renner just kind of in the beginning of that Larry Fedora offense got to be able to, you know, use a little bit more of uh, his offensive gifts and lead this offense maybe a little bit better than uh, TJ Yates was. And then Darian Durant, I put at five, you know very good quarterback in his own right and set records here at Carolina, but just played in a different era where, as you said, quarterbacks were guys that moved the football, of course, but mainly just kept the ball safe and were not the main offensive weapon. Um, So I think that, you know, the top two quarterbacks have to be the two sort of most recent guys and Marquise and Mitch Trubisky and then sort of the final three of, um, yeah, I'm going to tell you, that's uh, that's interesting because most of the feedback that I've gotten, um, most people have Mitch Trubisky at five because I feel like the one year of production is what kind of hurts him there. I think if you're looking probably at best overall arm talent, it's probably either Mitch or TJ Yates. I think both of them had fantastic arms. Um, but you know, yeah, no, I tend to agree that I would have Mitch maybe a little bit higher than, um, that, than a lot of people. I think he's probably in that three to two, two to three range. Yeah. I, I, I mean, you, you mentioned it. He's the overall for a season. He is the greatest passer in Carolina history. So, you know, you kind of just wonder what he would have been able to do if he would, if he would have stayed there. Uh, or if he would have, excuse me, if he would have been that quarterback um, from the time that he got on campus or potentially stayed there another year. But, um, you know, I, I'd say my number one for me is is Marquise. And I'm going to tell you why. And it's like you said, he's a, a guy that just knew how to win. And he was so versatile. Yeah, he had that running ability that everybody likes to talk about. But this guy was not a pushover passing the football. He was very accurate with the football. He was, I mean, he was a guy that didn't take a whole lot of risks, whether, you know, I mean, there, there were times where he would throw interceptions, but they weren't quite on the same level as some of the ones that we saw from TJ Yates or early career Brent Renner. Um, so, you know, ultimately, I think you've got to give him that edge also. I mean, because look at how much winning he really did. I mean, not to, he came in the year that Bren Renner got injured. We were 1-5 when he took over as the starting quarterback. He came in and won six straight games to get us to 6-5 and five before we would, of course, lose the game to Duke at home um, where he threw the interception. But at the same time, he I, I thought, you know, going back and looking at that game, if you go back and watch it, um, he was just trying to make a play, and, and that, that's something that happens sometimes. Um, but I mean, ultimately the dude, yeah, he was just, he was just a different nature when it came to winning. And, uh, you know, then I, I think after him, there's a little bit of an interesting debate. I would go with TJ Yates because 
He holds just about every record at Carolina, passing yards for a career, passing touchdowns for a career. And this was a guy that was a four-year starter under Butch Davis. That tells you something because Butch Davis was a guy that was very old school. And for him to go to a true freshman quarterback and let him play right away and have the success that TJ Yates did is fantastic. He played in a pro-style offense as well. Which, you know, if you go back and look at the numbers from those offenses, they were nowhere near comparable to the ones that we saw from uh, from Marquise or Bren Renner or Mitch Trubisky. So, um, you know, I would lean TJ Yates there. Uh, one of the points that was brought up by some of the people was that, oh, well, Keith gets the the major edge because of how mobile he was. I don't think people know how mobile TJ Yates was because he never got the opportunity to run the ball. In a pro-style offense, your quarterback never runs the football, ever, unless it's a quarterback sneak. So we don't really know how athletic he was. Um, you know, So those are my top two. I think those are pretty distinguished. Three, I would probably say Mitch Trubisky because of that one season, because of the just pure arm talent, because of the ability to take care of the football. This dude, yes, I mean, he was aggressive with the football at times, and that's what allowed him to be the number two pick in the draft. But he was so smart with his aggressiveness. You know, he knew when he had to turn it on. And he knew when, okay, look, if I throw this ball out of bounds here, I can reset and keep this drive going. You know, I, I, I go back. If you want to see any play, any group of plays that tell you what type of quarterback Mitch Trubisky was, just go watch that last drive against Pittsburgh in the immaculate comeback at home in Keenan. And if you go back and watch that and don't think that that's a talented quarterback, I don't know what to tell you. The guy converted – three fourth down plays. He's just a different animal. Um, you know, his mobility was so underrated. Most people don't talk about it. Yeah, he didn't have the rushing yards that Marquise Williams had. But at the same time, th this dude, man, he just knew how to move the pocket and create plays down the field by extending the play. And and that's something that you just – I, I know everybody misses Mitch Trubisky, and you should – because he was that great of a talent. If he would have stayed last year, I'm going to tell you what, that team would not have won three games. I think there's a real chance that if they would have stayed healthy, that team could have won nine or ten games. Um, so that leaves us with Bren Renner and Darian Durant. <sighs> man, I, I Darian Durant, man, he was a great player. And I, I, I'm going to tell you, he came in and took – snaps away from Ronald Curry, who was also a great player in his time at Carolina. And so that shows you the type of talent that Darian Durant was. Um, I would probably lean. That's hard, man. I, I, I'd probably lean Bren Renner because I thought by the end of his career, he just did such a great job of adjusting and growing as a quarterback throughout his time at Carolina. Most of the guys that we saw or that we've talked about here so far, you know, what they were coming in is very similar to what they were at the end of their careers. Bryn Renner was a guy that came in as a pro-style quarterback, an under-center quarterback, had success in that offense under Butch Davis, had success in the offense when Everett Withers was there, 
And then when Larry Fedora came in, changed the entire scheme, and Bren Renner uh, not only adjusted to that, but played better in the spread-style offense than he did in the pro-style offense. Early in his career, he had issues with turnovers. Throughout his career, he worked on cutting those down and eventually became a guy that really did a great job of taking care of the football his senior year and his junior year as well. I just, I mean, you can't say enough about a guy like that that had to pretty much change everything that he did about himself. Had to go through three head coaches and comes out on the other end and really, I mean, had a chance to make the NFL. Was a guy that I thought was talented to make the NFL. But where I think it hurts him a little bit is is his mobility. We all know that Bren Renner is not the most mobile quarterback ever. Um, go watch his preseason touchdown to walk off the game against the New Orleans Saints when he was with the Baltimore Ravens. You will never see an uglier run in your life, but it worked out for him. Um, and then, you know, Darian Durant at five. But again, Darian Durant was such a talented player. And the time that he was there on campus was a tough one because the talent around him was by far the worst out of any of the guys that we've talked about here in this debate. I would just say that, you know, he did have a little bit of turnover issues. His winning percentage was below 500. All the other guys were above 500. So that's the area where I think it hurts him just a little bit. But overall, I still think Darian Durant is a great quarterback. You go back and look at his CFL career. You can tell that he was a very talented player. And, you know, the biggest thing to realize is while this is a debate, look, uh, we are blessed to have five quarterbacks like this that we can sit here and actually talk about on this type of level. And, uh, you know, I I, I just thought it was great. I was was, uh, proud of the fan base for not overreacting and thinking that we were calling out any of the players as they normally do whenever we have debates like this. Primarily when it comes to basketball players, people always get offended over the fact that, you know, oh, well, you think that Tyler Hansborough is the greatest player in Carolina basketball history. That means that you don't like Michael Jordan. That is not what it is, and I'm glad that the fan base didn't take that perspective for this debate. So, um, with that, we're going to turn and we're going to preview the Virginia Tech game here really quickly um, as we try to uh, keep this podcast to a respectable time here. Um, but uh, when we look at the Virginia Tech game this upcoming weekend, now coming off the bye week, we've had really t- all, t- two weeks to prepare for this game. Um, I, I, You know, Virginia Tech is definitely a tough opponent. The thing is, I don't think we really know what Virginia Tech is at this time because we saw the team that they were in the first three games of the year. Then they get beat by Old Dominion. Everybody says, okay, well, they're maybe they're not as good as we thought they were. Josh Jackson gets injured. They, they uh, end up, uh, you know, cutting ties with uh, Trayvon Hill, um, who was one of their best defensive players. Everybody pretty much thinks the world is ending for this team. They go on the road to Duke, who was undefeated at 4-0 at the time. Pretty much everybody, including myself, thought Duke would win that game. And instead, Ryan Willis comes out, throws for over 300 yards, and looked fantastic. And they end up beating Duke. Then they come home and face Notre Dame. Now, Notre Dame is a very good football team. 
But at the same time, I didn't think that Virginia Tech really looked all that great. And I still think they're trying to figure things out at this moment. Maybe that helps us. Um, it's also going to be a night game, which we'll talk about that a little bit. But when you look at this team, Zach, what do you think – I mean, which team do you think they actually are? Are they that team that we saw in the first three games of the year and against Duke? Or are they that team that we saw against Old Dominion and a little bit against Notre Dame? You know, it's really hard to say because going into the season, before they even lost Trayvon Hill after that third game, they lost a ton of guys either to, you know, early um, early announcements to the NFL, guys that were dismissed, guys right. that transferred, guys that were out for the season with injuries. So this is very much a patchwork defense. And a lot of that has shown. I mean, this defense really hasn't dominated outside of uh, against William and Mary, which they should. Uh, and then in the Florida State game to begin the season, they've, they've had issues. They've had struggles. Um, so uh, as we've seen in the, in the past two games, they've had to rely on their offense with new quarterback uh, Ryan Willis. That was, uh, I believe, a transfer from Kansas who's yep. thrown for over 300 yards in the two games that he started so far. That's really a, a big identity shift for this Virginia Tech defense. Yeah, for this Virginia Tech team as a whole, uh, that's used to being known as being this, you know, defensive monster under defensive coordinator uh, Bud Foster, and has really taken a step back due to the youth and inexperience, and has had to rely on their offense. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, you know, we, we everybody always hears at the lunch pail defense, and look, I mean, we we can all probably agree that Virginia Tech is not one of those teams clearly that we like. They are in the ACC Coastal. Um, but you know, look, Bud Foster is as good of a defensive coordinator as there is in college football for the last 20 years. So, you know, for his defense to be showing some of these signs, yeah, I mean, it's gotta be a little concerning for them, but it's like you said, this unit is unbelievably young. That, that is something that you just very rarely see from Virginia Tech. Most of their defenses are always very senior laden, but because of everything that we've seen, you know, they have cut ties with some of these older guys. And I think that just shows, though, that, look, Fuente does not care about what has happened in the past. He does not care about seniority or anything like that. If you don't play his style and if you are a guy that is causing issues within the locker room or is not doing what they are supposed to do off the field, he is not going to make excuses for you. And I don't know that Frank Beamer did that. I'm not saying that he did that because I don't know. But with Fuente, it's just different. And I think a lot of Virginia Tech fans, they're kind of split on whether or not they really like the style that he is as a coach. But look, this guy's a talented coach. We've seen that as Tar Heel fans. And I mean, you, you look at this offense and I, I still think there's a lot, there, there's something there. And that's going to cause us some issues um, come Saturday night. I, I'm interested to see what they do. They've got to get after the quarterback, Ryan Willis, because Ryan Willis is not really known for his running ability. This is a guy that's going to stand back there and throw the football around the yard. Now, the issue is the last time that we saw a quarterback that stood back there and threw the entire game, that was against ECU, and Reed Herring had a ton of success. They've got to be able to put pressure on Willis and force him to have to make some of these 
quick decisions, force him to get the ball out of his hands quickly, and allow your defense to tackle in space. The other thing is they have to be able to stop this run game because this run game for Virginia Tech is not good. They have not been good running the football probably since 2012, 2011 maybe at Virginia Tech. So if they are able to have success on the ground, the Tar Heels are in for a long, long night. That's the thing that they have got to focus on the most. Take away this running game. If they're going to beat you throwing the football, I trust the secondary for the Tar Heels more than I trust the front seven when it comes to stopping the run. So that that's one of the things that I think the Heels have to do. I think that's something that they've got to do really the rest of the season going forward. Make the quarterbacks beat you if they're going to because your secondary, um, you know, Overall, they, they've had, you know, they've done a good job in coverage pretty much all year. There have been a few lapses, but for the most part, I think everybody in that secondary has stepped up to have a pretty solid season. Um, you know, I, I think also you've got to be able to win in the trenches. That's something that against Virginia Tech has always been a key. And, you know, this year, I feel like this, look, they're still talented on the offensive and defensive lines. But I feel like this year, this is one of those years where they're just not quite on the same level as they've been in the past. Carolina has to take advantage of that, especially on the offensive side of the ball. You've got to be able to give your quarterback time to get the ball down the field because if you don't get the ball down the field, you're not going to have that much success. Now, I'm not saying we need to go deep pass on top of deep pass. We're going to need some of those short screen plays to get guys like Daz Newsome and if Rontavius Togros plays out in space, get them to be able to use that speed and take advantage of these young players for Virginia Tech. Um, but also, you need that offensive line to be able to run block for you. The, the Toriels have to be able to run the football well in order to win games. you got Michael Carter, who showed some signs against Miami. We've seen what Antonio Williams has done at times this year when he's been the number one guy, and then Jordan Brown as well. That's the strength of your team. You've got to be able to let those guys do work in that backfield. So what are some of your keys to the game for Carolina? Well, there's really four things to look at, and that's the uh, run offense, run defense, pass offense, and pass defense for this Virginia Tech team. And like you said, they're bad at running the ball. They've done well, at least in the past two games, passing the ball. Their run defense is fairly good. They're ranked in the top five in run defense, and their pass defense is fairly bad. They're near the back five in terms of power five teams in pass defense. So there's a clear sort of game plan for UNC on both sides of the ball. You're going to want to do your best to stop the run to put them into third and long situations so that they have to beat them with your arm, like you said. Um, Make this quarterback, make Ryan Willis throw the ball to beat you. Second, do your best to apply pressure. This is going to be the last game that you're going to have without Malik Carney, arguably our best pass rusher. So it's going to take other guys. It's going to take um, Tamon Fox. It's going to take guys like Tyrone Hopper, Alan Cater. It's going to take mm -hmm. interior guys like Jason Strobridge. And it's going to take your linebackers. It's going to take your Jonathan Smiths, your Cole Holcombs, your Dominique Rosses to come in off the blitz and make this quarterback uncomfortable. Offensively, just looking at how their defense is structured, 
UNC is going to have to pass to win this game. And I don't really know how that's going to go, seeing as they've had trouble moving the ball through the air outside of Pitt. Mm -hmm. Um, If they go with Nathan Elliott, they're going to have to rely on sort of that short passing game and get their athletes out in space, your Till Groves, your Daz Newsome. You're going to have to get those guys out in the open field and let them get the yards after the catch for you. Uh, if you go with Chas Surratt, you really, I don't know what the game plan is. If you go out with Chas Surratt, I don't think he's going to be the starting quarterback after throwing three picks in the last game. Mm-hmm. My choice personally, and I hope that they've been, you know, working on these things, seeing as they've had this extended off period to kind of create this game plan, is that they give Cade Fortin some snaps. Mm-hmm. We, we as fans, and we here on the podcast, have been clamoring for Cade Fortin to get snaps and to see what he can do in this offense. He's clearly the best passer on the roster, I think, in both of our opinions, and really just needs time to get comfortable to establish chemistry with his receivers uh, and to still learn this playbook, as he's going to still be doing. And I'm not saying that there won't be hiccups, but for UNC to have its best chance of victory, I think you're going to have to play Cade Fortin significantly, and you're going to have to throw the ball vertically downfield and in the middle of the field, which is something that UNC quarterbacks have not been able to do well so far this season. Yeah, no, you're right. Go ahead. Yeah, no, you're you're, you're right. And I just wanted to get this point in uh, really quickly before you moved on from that. And that, look, I, I mean, Cade Fortin's played in one game so far this year. He can play in up to four before the red shirt has to be officially taken out of question. To me, put him out there. If he really struggles that bad, you can always put him back on the bench, put that red shirt on him, bring him back next year. But if you got something potentially lightning in a bottle and he brings something to get this offense going, brings that deep passing game that you've lacked really for the last year and a half, that that's something that you need at this point. That's the only way you're going to win games. You're not going to win games by dumping the ball down, completing as many passes as you do behind the line of scrimmage, and trying to basically run the ball not even half the time. You're, you're throwing the ball as much as you are, yet you're not able to get the ball downfield. If you want to throw that much, you've got to get a quarterback in there that can throw the ball downfield. If you're gonna stick with the guys that are in there now, you gotta go. You, you're gonna have to run the ball. I would say 70 to 75 percent of the time if you want to have any chance of success. But um, yeah, go go ahead and finish uh, what, what what you were gonna say there. Last thing, I kind of make a point of this every week, um, but it's especially more true in this game and going throughout the season is you're going to have to limit turnovers and uh, bad mistakes. You have to play. Uh, well, penalties, I should say, not bad mistakes, penalties. Turnovers and penalties have to be limited in this game for you to have a chance. And that's pretty much going to be true for the rest of the season of all possible. I mean, penalties, turnovers, bad field position are some of uh, the most uh, determining factors in games where you have either an equal talent advantage or maybe that you have a little bit less talent on this team. And I don't think that this... UNC team can afford to play sloppy. They can't afford to make mistakes if they want to win this game. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Turnovers, they, they, they have to cut down on those if they want to find a way to pull this thing out. So, we go to our picks presented by Hustle Hands Worldwide. Guys, it's a podcast that's on every Wednesday night, hosted by myself 
and Jameson Sharp. Guys, check it out. Hustlehands.com as well for all your Hustle Hands apparel. And we'll turn to you first, Zach. When you look at this game, you know, where do you, I mean, what is your mindset going in? I think at this point, you know, I, I kind of know where you're going, but what is your final score prediction for this one? Well, I think that this game will certainly be closer than, um, you know, the Miami game. I, I didn't have a good feeling going into the Miami game, and that certainly showed in the game that we saw. I really can't say that I feel confident about this team right now until I see them do it. That's kind of been my mindset every week is I can't feel confident in what you bring to the table until I see you do it. That being said, I think that this can and will still be a competitive game. I think it will be low scoring. I think that this is a team for um, Virginia Tech that's in a bit of a weird spot right now. And I feel like you can say the same for UNC. So I think I'm going to predict a Virginia Tech win. I'm going to say it's close. I'm going to say Virginia Tech 31, UNC 28. Um, so wow. just a three-point win. Um, I think that could go either way. I could easily put UNC there. I'm just going to give Virginia Tech the benefit of the doubt here um, because of the Bud Foster defense and because um, I don't know what UNC is bringing to the table. Um, that being said, I'm making this prediction hoping that UNC is going to play Cape Fortin significantly. I don't know if that's going to be the case. I'm not hopeful of that right now, but as I've said and as we say every week, we have to still keep faith in this team, we keep faith in the players, and we keep faith in the organization that you know everyone listening uh, either grew up with or attended or just loves for whatever reason. And I'm going to have that attitude as I watch this game. Yeah, no, I mean that's the thing you got to you you got to you got to give yourself some hope at this point. I mean. Look, I've seen a lot of people that have been very, very negative on Twitter and saying, oh, well, we just need to move on to basketball season. No, no, that's not the mindset that this fan base needs to take. You need to show that you want to that, – that you care about football because I don't think people realize that, look, you're not going to get a big-time coach if you keep preaching the narrative that we don't care about football in Chapel Hill, which I don't think is true. I think that, that there is a good portion of the fan base that cares about Carolina football. So that mindset that we just need to move on and focus focus on basketball season, I, I, I just don't get it. I don't get the people that can do that. To me, I, I mean, I guess it's a little different for me because I write the blog about the team. We do a podcast on the team. So, of course, it's going to be a little different for us. But still, I, I, I've never been like that. Like, even with the with the Giants right now, my team is one – I mean, my team got beat at, you know, by the only possible way they could find a way to get beat. They go to one and four. They get beat by a 63-yard field goal. It's the second year in a row that they've been beaten by a field goal of 60 or more yards. And today, I went into my job here in Charlotte on a sports radio station at WFNZ wearing my New York Giants gear because, look, you got to support your team. So, yeah, no, I hope that the fan base can show up. I'm not 100% sure if I'm going to be able to be there yet. I'm kind of hoping I can get there, but at the same time, I've got to see where my finances are. So, that's that's the issue there. Um, but, you know, uh, when I look at this game, going back to our picks here, focusing 
on really the big task at hand. Um, you know, I, I think right now, Virginia Tech, they opened at a six-point favorite, which I, I can't believe they opened that low. I'm, I'm actually very shocked by that line. Um, but, you know, Virginia Tech, I think, look, we've seen how they've beaten us down at, at certain points. And, you know, 2015 was the year where we finally got them. You can say whatever you want to say about, oh, that was towards the end of the Frank Beamer era. They really weren't all that good. That team went into Blacksburg and beat that team. So it, th that's that was still a great win. Um, but at the same time, you know, I look at this game and right now with the inability to get this offense rolling with a lack of a deep passing game, with a lack of a focus to run the football, and with some of the struggles that they've seen on the defensive side of the ball, primarily stopping the run, I would have to go with Virginia Tech in this scenario. I do think that Carolina will play better than they have so far to this point in the last couple of games. But at the same time, I think there's just too much there for Virginia Tech. Their offense, I think, will be able to have a little bit of success passing the football. And ultimately, I, I just I don't think we're going to be able to keep up with them points-wise in this game. So I think Virginia Tech, unfortunately, pulls out the win. So guys, I want to thank you for listening to this edition of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. Listen and subscribe to the podcast on Spreaker iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, and tune in. Follow the blog on medium.com. Just search Heel Tough Blog. I want to thank Zach for jumping on with us as he will each week during the season. Saturday's game at home against the Virginia Tech Hokies will kick off at 7 o'clock on ESPNU. Jones Angel and Brian Simmons will be on the call for the Tar Heel Sports Network if you are unable to tune in on the television. That's 99.3 FM and 1110 AM WBT in Charlotte, 97.9 FM and 1360 AM WCHL in Chapel Hill, and 106.1 FM WTKK in Raleigh. For others, please check your local listings. That's going to do it for tonight, and as always, go Tar Heels!